Welcome to Beyond the Labyrinth, one of several places where, where I, Hannah Gracian, and my co-beagler, Alfred Reeves Bisson, engage in the labyrinthine pursuit of questions of meaning. Today is a very special episode because we are going to talk about Alfred's newest work, Push of the Pendulum, a fantasy, we're calling it a fantasy novella, aren't we, Alfred? We are. Yes. So maybe we'll just jump right in and let you tell us a little about it. What happens? What's the setting? What's this book about? <laughs> well, the setting is a small rural private boarding school, and it is sort of a, um, I suppose, a coming of age uh, story, uh, although um, I don't think that's really the, wasn't really the intention or the, or the focus, but it's set more in a more or less, more or less contemporary uh, in the last decade or so and it's a story about a young person who is unwillingly uh off at school feeling very displaced feeling not at home feeling disconnected this and, is off at a private boarding school yes so really off at school yes really truly off at school yeah and uh he makes some interesting discoveries uh which enable him to find not just connection but a but a place in the universe um and of course, the discovery he makes involves uh, magic, which makes it a, a fantasy novel, even though it is set in it roughly in our world. How old? How old is the character? Tenth uh, grade, ninth, tenth sophomore grade. in high school. Okay. Yeah. All right, so- sophomore in high school, and his name is Julian. Now, yes. How did you? Yeah. Julian Drake. Um, the Drake is, is, I suppose, a little too obvious of a nod to um, dragons. I just couldn't resist, um, even though there are no dragons in the story, unfortunately. Um, but the name Julian uh, is a nod to Julian of Norwich, uh, who was a, a medieval anchoress uh, in Norwich, England, who is famous for writing, uh, uh, having all these um, revelations that she actually wrote down, which is a little unusual, especially for a female mystic. Um and, and she's quoted at a key moment in the novel. She's quoted at a key moment in the novel. She has a very famous uh, saying, all shall be well, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, um, which, which, which plays a role. So, so I, I suppose it gives him a bit of a, a, a androgynous name, but, that, but that's the reason for the, for the reference. And hopefully that becomes sort of clear in, in the novel because it's that sense of being well is, I think, what I was trying to draw on. Yeah. And, and so I was thinking, what is it about Julian that you find interesting? But of course you created Julian. So you made him interesting. What do you think is, is sort of the most interesting thing about the personality of this, this character? Cause he doesn't, I mean, he doesn't feel like he's related to Julian of Norwich. So that, so that's, that's something that the reader gets to appreciate. But, but what about the kid that we're portraying here? Who's this kid? Yeah, he. I think he shares something that I see in a lot of young people. Um, you know, a s- sense of dislocation, but but also maybe a lacking a sense of of what he's able to do. And um, th- that's and again, that th- that's a that's a classic sort of Bildungsroman idea, I suppose. But the the idea that uh, you know someone is thrust into a situation and and then can do more than they maybe think they can. And with his parents splitting up, he's facing sort of some contemporary problems. Yes. As the uh, book opens, his parents yes. are divorcing his father. They're selling their house that he grew up in. 
father, getting a new wife and a new house and uh, getting rid of a very important clock, except it wasn't important to his father. Yeah. So that, so that, that idea that um, the place that he assumed the, 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 the home that he knew is, is sort of torn away and he's sent off to school. Uh, he comes, he comes home uh, for, for sort of a fall long weekend, a fall break type thing. And, and, you know, realizes that his father is quite literally packing up his home and it's going to be gone. And, uh, and his bedroom is already packed, isn't it? Yes. His bedroom is packed. He comes home and his bedroom's um, packed. Yeah. So it's, it's dislocating. And um, he, as, as, as one of the things that happens over the course of this weekend is he, he sort of rediscovers this antique clock that, that was in the study that had belonged to his great grandfather. Uh, and he sort of finds to his horror that his father's, you know, going to get rid of it, donate it. And, and he protests and says, you know, no, you can't get rid of this. And the father doesn't really understand why. And he says, no, no, I, I want to take this back to school with me. Um, and again, father thinks it's bizarre, but yeah, whatever, if it will spare an argument, you know, go ahead and take it. <clears throat> and, and of course the reason he, has an attachment to it is he has a childhood memory of being sort of in awe of this clock of it making him feel very strange, but, but at home when, when it's, when it's ticking. And so, and so he, um, he takes it with him back to school and that sort of, uh, I guess, launches the really launches the plot. Not only the plot, but the element of magic in the plot, because the, the clock does have this power to make people, to make him feel calm that, that his, his classmates also, um, experience to some degree. And speaking of magic, you know, so this, this is a fantasy novel. Um, there is magic. So of course, many people will be thinking of Harry Potter. Uh, well, <laughs> in any way indebted to Harry Potter? Well, it's also set in a school. So yes, yeah. that's the obvious. And, and so emphatically, no. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, I've read the Harry Potter book several times. I, I they're they're great in many ways, um, but no, th th this is um, really it's a coincidence, um, which may be hard to believe, but uh, it is a coincidence that it's set in a school and it involves magic. It's set in a school because that's what I know um, very well, and I guess um, that's an old adage, right? Right about what you know, um, and so this kind of setting is something that I know intimately. And why um, do you know schools? You're I work in one. I teach in one. Um, yeah. So uh, a boarding school, a boarding school. Yes. Yeah. So it's something that I know well. And then the magic element has much more to do with my own uh, interest and background. Um, I mean, if I had to pick an influence, it would be John Belair's um, uh, The House on a Clock on Its Walls, which a terrible movie was made out of. Um, but it's a, a great YA uh, uh, book. But it but similarly involves a young person who stumbles onto an ability to use magic and saves the world, roughly speaking. Um, um, but that, that that's more of, a, of an influence for sure than, than Harry Potter. Um, there, there really is not much of a connection there other than it happens to be in a school and involves magic. Um, yeah. And, 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 I, and I th no, go, go ahead. ahead. I, I think just, you've, uh, you've been, you've, um, read a lot of fantasy some of it good some of it not quite as good i know one of the big challenges in a fantasy novel can be world building because um in some cases you're sort of starting from scratch here you you, you don't you didn't have to do so much of that do you want to talk about that element of fantasy at all 
Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're, you know, dallying with fantasy, I think you have a, a, a choice right away. You know, do you set this in a completely alternative world in which you have to create geography and language and customs and all of those things, um, which is, you know, a huge task in and of itself. And of course the master of that was Tolkien, um, whose work actually, the fiction he wrote actually came after the languages he created, um, you know, which is sort of incredible. And most people are not up to that. And so I think that is one of the, a lot of fantasies, I would argue, suffers from really bad world building, you know, because it's a lot of work, you know, and, and then the, the, so the other alternative is that you, um, you set a story in our world more or less and you, and you change some things perhaps. Um, that's a, that's a much easier route um, because you can then just focus on what happens and why it happens and all that. And you're not, you're not having to also create a world and language and geography and all, and all those things. So I took the easy way out um, again, writing about what I, what I know. Um, so this is, this is a pretty normal world except for this one element, which you could argue is pretty big, but that, 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 that magic operates. Um, and uh, really, and I guess part of, part of the point of the novel is to offer a sort of a understanding of, of how and why it operates. And, and, and so, um, that's really, I think what I was focusing on. So I didn't want to have to, um, engage in, in world building that might not succeed. Ah, okay. All right. And thinking about wanting to tell that particular story, um, most of your writing to this point isn't fiction. This is this is a first novel. Is that right? Yes. Alfred? Yes. Yeah. First novel. Sure. Yep. So um, you hold a doctoral degree in theology. Um, Guilty. Something of a thinker. <sighs> Guilty. Guilty. <laughs> yeah. So so is there a connection there? Something is something in your background. Something in your all of the thinking that you've done. It makes you want to tell this particular story and that makes the fantasy element particularly useful or something. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, this makes me think of um, Umberto, Umberto Eco, the, the great Italian, uh, uh, I guess he's a professor. He was, he was a professor of, of semiotics, uh, but also wrote a whole string of, of novels, which are um, fairly difficult. Semiotics <laughs> is what? I'm not even sure completely. It's language and meaning and symbols and stuff like that. Philosophical um, stuff. Okay. Yeah. Um, but he he he's at a much higher level. Sort of did something like this, and and he he also speaking of world building, you know he he also showed his novels are definitely fantasies of a sort, but they're all set in what we would call our world. Even the name of the Rose, which was set in the middle ages, it's nonetheless within our world. And then there's, um, and then some of his other works like Foucault's pendulum are again, are set in the contemporary world, but they have this whole element of, of other things going on. Um, but he very much is a, is a person who who's writing about ideas in, in novels. And so, um, I think what I was trying to do here was combine two things was just to, to uh, engage in, in fantasy, which I've, I've read all my life, but also uh, take on what I think is, is one of the great weaknesses of a lot of fantasy writing, which is that uh, you, you read this novel and there's things happening and then somebody works magic 
And often it's a really key part of the plot, you know, saves the day maybe even, but there's absolutely no explanation of how this could possibly work. You know, it's just sort of there. And, you know, and, and of course that may make people laugh like, well, it's magic. How are you going to explain it? And, and you know, there's even a, um, uh, there's even a, a scene in a Terry Pratchett novel where one of the characters, Captain Sam Vimes, who's a notorious sort of cynic, you know, says something about, you know, not wanting the help of the, of the wizards from unseen university. Um, I don't want to do this because it's magic. I don't like magic. Why? Because it's magic. You know, anything can happen. It's unpredictable. It's, you know, um, or it and, just plain doesn't make sense. <laughs> well, and, and so what I was, one of the things I really, what I set out to do is like, I want to write a story, a, a novel in which there is magic and it does make sense. It is internally consistent. That the reader can go early oh. consistent. You know, yes. the, yeah. The reader can say, Oh, okay. I see how this works. So and within that, the context of the story. Right. Right. In the world uh, of the story, it makes sense. Right. Well, and, and, you know, I think even in the context of our world, it makes sense. It's just, unfortunately we live in a boring sort of reality. Um, but uh, so that's, so that's really, you know, I think what I was setting out to do is okay can can we have a novel in which there is magic and in which it it makes it makes some sense it's internally consistent um which which brings me to the thought of the first question i asked you when i first read the book alfred said i can you do magic (laughs) yeah (laughs) right well which is which is also you know another reader of an early draft asked the same question um so i take that as a compliment that means it's convincing (laughs) right it makes it makes it makes so much sense that someone would ask that question okay Um, all right and and the answer is unfortunately no um (laughs) but but uh maybe maybe to to maybe connect this to another point is you know why magic at all? Why fantasy at all? Um, and, and I and I think that that to me is a serious uh, question, a serious point, because I think uh, I have thought about this in an undisciplined way for a long time, and and I think magic does play a significant, meaningful role in you know may, maybe in human art and in, in literature in the sense that you know I think it's a metaphor. Um, you know, there is a lot of, um, you know, fantasy that is just like an adventure story, you know, it's like a cowboy Western or whatever, you know, it's just an adventure story and it's just escapism and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think there's also fantasy in which magic is, is functioning as a metaphor, um, that helps us to think about maybe deeper, deeper things. And, And that's certainly what I was, um, after here, um, so, um, you know, I don't want to get too abstract, but if you think about the religious dimension of, of life, uh, you know, we are these strange upright apes who can think about ourselves and we're in this universe and, and most of the other animals, at least the ones we know about, can't think about themselves in the way that we do for good or for ill. I mean, you could argue that we probably the planet would be better off if we were, um, you know, not so self-aware, but at any rate, you know, self-awareness has given humans all these amazing abilities. Um, but it also, you know, means we're, we don't feel very at home in the universe because we're these strange biological creatures that can think about our own biology and we can worry about it. We can worry about death. We can worry about illness. We can worry about, 
you know, what we want for dinner, we, 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 you know, we, we worry a lot or we can worry a lot. And, and, and we have this sense sort of inherent sense of dislocation, which is, you know, again, not something I am, this is something many, many people have talked about and, and thought about, but part of what the religious point of view or, or philosophical point of view perhaps tries to say is actually, yes, we are potentially not at home in the universe, but if we think about it the right way, we can be at home in the universe. We can find a way to feel, to feel connection. And usually that, that point of view, it centers on this idea that at the very bottom of things, at the very back of things, at, at the, at the inside of things, you know, depending on your, your sort of metaphor, everything is connected to everything else. Everything in the universe is part of a whole. Um, you know, we, we exist in plurality. We're all these separate beings, but yet there's somehow a, it's a universe. It's one thing. There's a there's a sort of interdisciplinary thrust in that direction, I think. You know, I think there's a lot of science heading that yes. way too. I think this is sort of a a unifying thought across a lot of fields. Yes. Um, and, and I know you're you're sort of taking it in a particular direction here, but but I think it's interesting that we have that backdrop. If we look at what a lot of what's going on in physics, there's a lot of strange connections that are turning out to be um, you know, I guess there's so much we don't understand about what we think we understand, but still turning out to be very useful and changing the way computers work and changing the way we think about a lot of things. So what about that? Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, my interest is less practical, I suppose, but, or, but in some ways it's ultimately practical. I mean, it, it's this notion that it, it, if we, and again, this, these are not ideas original to me. I, I'm just taking something that people have thought and talked about for thousands of years but if we can come to some awareness that we are not actually an isolated part, right? We are part of a of something greater, um, and that doesn't mean you know our our ourselves are devalued or destroyed. It just means that, ironically, it's sort of a paradox that to actually um, be everything that you are to be fulfilled, quote unquote, you 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 need an awareness that you fit into something larger than yourself. So there's a sense of transcendence. Um, <clears throat> and, and I think, um, you know, it, that's a very old religious idea that, that if we can transcend ourselves, we find a connection to something greater, to everything else that exists. And that, I think that is where magic as a metaphor sort of comes into play. Um, because, you know, essentially the premise of the novel is the way magic works is that those a person who can reach that awareness, that awareness of, of something greater, that sort of an inner unity of all things, um, it, it, that person, that awareness of that opens up the idea that, okay, you're transcending yourself, you're breaking down the division between subject and object, between self and other, between, uh, you know, the, the rules of space and time. These are all things that if there is truly an inner unity, all of those divisions that, that govern our daily lives are transcended. And so theoretically, that then means that things like space and time, right, can can be overcome, at least at least momentarily. And so that's the that's the premise of the, the operation of magic is that it's essentially a practitioner has to, is essentially a form of meditation, which mm -hmm. enables the practitioner to overcome subject object duality and therefore unlock the ability to transcend time and space and the other limitations of our existence in a very moment, you know, uh, brief way. There's, there's a whole bit where, you know, I try to work out that this is not something you can do permanently. Otherwise you wouldn't exist, right. You would no longer be plurality. There would just be unity. And, and, and then, you know, 
what's the point, right? It's a pretty uh, heavy load for the shoulders of a 10th grader too, to, to have to, to figure yes. out the, the meditation, to figure out the transcendence and to get it all right. Um, Julian does it well. <laughs> well, he has, he has guidance. He has guidance, right? So the, um, the whole, right. the, the, the idea is that there's this clock that he discovers that was, uh, was his great grandfather's. And it turns out, of course, that his great grandfather uh, was a wizard and, and enchanted the clock. Um, and the, and the clock is meant to be a conduit, a con, excuse me, a conduit to that sense of connection and to, to create a sense of belonging, a sense of being at home in the universe. It's sort of like the Holy grail. It, it, it sort of brings it, it overcome, it, you know, enables everyday uh, people to, to experience transcendence essentially, and, and to stop grasping and, and to, and to sort of let go and be at home and be at peace. Um, and so, uh, yes, and, and so he, he discovers the journal that his great-grandfather had written, and his great-grandfather was a teacher at the school originally, and so he discovers this journal and, and, and so is able to um, pursue this. It's so. like an instruction book, almost. Yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, the, the, uh, this, another, maybe another influence here is Ursula Le Guin, um, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know the influence, but, but certainly when I read the Earthsea trilogy, um, there's a little bit of this in there that, that, you know, she's playing with, with the idea that, that magic isn't just magic. It, it, it is a, it is a metaphor. Um, she makes use of the idea of um, the very old idea that if you know the true name of something, you have power over it. And that's, that's a very old idea in, 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 um, in, in magic that, that, you know, have, knowing something's true name, it, 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 you have power over it. And so there's a lot of stories in which, you know, someone who has a uh, magical ability has to guard their true name from, from their, their enemy. Um, their she, own true name. Yeah. Their own true name. Right. Because okay. if someone else gets it, then they, they would they therefore have control over you. And, you know, and I, and, and that uh, I, thinking about that, I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense because if you know the true name of something that in, basically what that means is you, you know what it is, what it truly is, what its being is. And the true being of anything is connected to a larger whole, to this unity. Um, and so that would unlock, you know, power over it because you, you actually know what it truly is. Um, and I, I, so I guess all this is sort of contingent on the idea that most of us in our everyday lives run around, not really being aware of, what we all truly are, right? Which is part of a part of something, something greater. And and so um, I'm basically, I guess, taking taking the sort of insights of of, of great religious traditions and, and turning it into using ma magic as a metaphor for that. Um, and it's too bad it doesn't work in everyday life, um, you know. But um, I do think this way of thinking brings peace, if not the ability to, um, you know, turn yourself invisible or whatever. Right. And so we should get to theme here in just a minute. But one thing that, that I think is kind of interesting is, so if you're aware of the connectedness, then you have peace maybe. Um, but there's the other extreme. If you're completely unaware of the connectedness and you don't know who you are, then where are you? I mean, cause, cause, cause I guess Julian is sort of at the brink here. He could go in that direction because he certainly isn't feeling connected at the beginning of the book. But, you know, fortunately, he's our hero, so he finds the way. But, but what if you didn't find the way? Because we do have some characters in the book that clearly have not found the way. 
Mr. Striker, for instance. Yes. Well, so so that actually raises a really interesting point. I mean, most and again, this is you know this is following an age old you know pattern. This is very much a novel of good versus evil. You know, this is not dystopian. Um, uh, which is which is conscious. I mean that that's a choice. Um, I I understand why much of contemporary fantasy is dystopian, um, uh, but I, I'm sort of a romantic when it comes to fantasy. I, I want it. I want some, not just escapism, but but some some possibility of redemption. Um, and so you know this is a very traditional story. Um, so most of the characters are just they're unaware, and and that's the, sort of the end of it uh the sort of antagonist um is a practitioner of of, of dark magic and um it, it's sort of the other direction and, and this is probably where the philosophical underpinnings of all this are, are weakest but um what i'm drawing on there is 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 the neoplatonic understanding of evil um and so without being too technical neoplatonism was a was a revision of of plato's philosophy that was um sort of worked out by plotinus who was a, a greek thinker in the uh third century i believe of the common era who was then adopted by saint augustine and and whose whose work you know was influential on on the formation of of western thought but the idea basically is that if you think about the universe, it's 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 like a pebble dropped in a in a, in a still pond. It's a set of emanations outward, and at the center is the one, and everything that exists is a, is a sort of emanation of the one, and um, the one is good, and so everything that exists is good. That's that's sort of the theory. So then that naturally beautiful raises- idea. Right, right, right. It's 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 both you know aesthetically and intellectually pleasing, I suppose. Um, but then that raises the natural question: Well, okay, so but clearly everything is not good. There is there is evil. There is you know what, what's going on here. And so the answer in in Neoplatonism is that evil does not exist on its own. It is not an opposing force, um, a separate power. It it is a corruption of goodness. So it's 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 when one of those emanations, one of those separate parts. Uh, one of that one of those aspects of plurality basically says to the inner unity of all things no you know i am the center of everything you know i there you know there is not one in the center to which i am a lesser part i am the center of the universe it's it's sort of your classic sort of um, cosmic selfishness or cosmic sin if you want to use a, a word that's outmoded now you know that, that you when you make yourself the center of everything you're Cosmically speaking, a selfish jerk. Um, you, you then, you, 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 you become evil, and that does not mean you are a separate power. It means you are, you are a corruption of what was good. If you had the right relationship with, with everything, you know, you, you, you've now become corrupt. And so, in the novel, the the antagonist, that's where he is, and he unlocks the power of of non being, um, essentially of death. And which which doesn't have an, its own existence, but um, and again, this is a this is a you know not new territory. This is again something that is in a lot of fantasy. Tolkien, in particular, in the Lord of the Rings, does a lot with this. Um, but, but so what's so sort of what you're saying? If I can recap this, just so so you're saying that if you're if you are aware of um, your connection to the unity, if you're living in plurality with that connection then you begin to know who you are and you can be good and you can live a whole life and be a whole person. But 
if you don't find that connection, if you don't feel the unity in the plurality, then it leads to something else. Could be evil. Can it be something less than evil? I mean, do you become an evil wizard because you don't feel the kindness? <laughs> no, or no, or no. Are, is, are there some stopping points along yeah, the way? No, I mean, I think most of us would be in the middle uh, for sure. You know, so you just, it's just a less happy way to live or. Um, yeah, I mean, well, I don't know if I'd use the word happy, but you know, I think all that—that's the experience we all, you know, that's where we all are, really, right? We 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 go along from day to day, and some days we get past ourselves and we find some fulfillment and meaning, and other days we don't get past ourselves and we let our our worries and our angers and our anxieties govern us, and so we are, you know, enslaved to that, and and we might lash out at, you know, or we or we might just be unhappy, and you know that that I think that's that is most of our existence, right? It's an oscillation, maybe. Um, and, you know, if you look in, in real human history, right, the, the people who end up being revered as saints or sages or whatever are, are the ones who are kind of saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, hold on a second. Um, all of that stuff you're worried about, right, isn't really actually that important. If you had you had this grander, bigger perspective, you would find some some peace, um, you know, whether it's the Buddha or Jesus or wh whoever, you know, and, and I'm not saying it's all exactly the same, but um, Julian of Norwich, you know, there, the, there's a message there that the things that weigh us down, you know, can be gotten past. And, and I think it's, it's the other end of the, the spectrum, the, what, what in the novel becomes a person who's evil is the one who not only refuses to try that, but, but actually digs deeper into their own anger and their own anxiety and their own grasping, um, you know, wanting to consume it all, wanting to, to master everything, wanting to be the one, in fact. Um, and, and, that, and that leads to being consumed by it. Right. And it's kind of an interesting thought because as you've pointed out, we're all sort of there, but we aren't thinking, oh, I want to be the one. And yet we, I think we, some of us know people who it sort of feels like that's where they're at. And, yeah, and absolutely. we have one of the, yeah. And we have one of those in the novel, Mr. Stryker. And, and Julian starts out, as I said, at the tipping point, he, because it's a novella and be, you know, a, a story and not reality. And maybe even because it's aimed at a younger audience I think he, we feel like he's found the way by the end. Yeah, he, 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 he starts to feel at home, not just in the universe, but in, in the place where he is with the friends that he makes in the, in the, 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 the school. And, the, and, so, and, and so the sort of conflict is resolved, as it were. Um, yeah. And I think it's interesting that you say that, you know, as I was reading through it, I kept noticing um, place. It's sort of headed toward theme here. Um, he loses yeah. his place. He loses his room. What does the clock make him feel? The clock makes him feel at home that yeah. you, you, you've got that in there somewhere. Um, Miss Sayer, who is a, uh, a mentor, I guess we could say of him in his journey. Um, she, at some point says that the clock is itself a pendulum tying the, pl this place, mm. the school, to the rhythm of the eternal. I mean, there's just a lot of reference to place here. And I guess that's 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 what Julian's kind of looking for. What's the theme? Well, I, I there it is, right? I mean, I because I think um, this, I mean, I'll, I'll try to answer that question, but I, I think it raises the question of what fantasy does in general. And I think fantasy is a reaction to 
the placelessness, the disconnection, the disaffectation of modernity. I, I you know, I, I think, um, you know, we live in a culture, particularly in the United States, but, you know, less so maybe in, in Europe, but, and, and other parts of the world, but, but particularly that, that, that doesn't care a whole lot about place. I mean, we're, we're a country that in our short history builds things and then breaks them apart and replaces them with other things. Um, you know, and then the 20th century with its, with its creation of, you know, sort of a car culture and suburbia and, and all of this, you know, you can journey around our country and it all looks the same, you know, mm-hmm. it all looks exactly the same. And I think that's where I was starting from that, that sense of just disaffectation with, you know, yet another, Route 17 with stoplights and strip malls and, you know, and to be raised in suburbia is like being raised nowhere. Exactly. It, it is. Yeah. It is like being raised nowhere because there is nothing unique about a suburban upbringing, which is what I had. And, and you know, um, and some people that don't care about that at all. But other people, I think what we're seeing today, you know, a lot of people are looking for something more. You know, they they want to live in, a, in an actual town with you know, that has an actual history and that has people that know each other and there's connection and relationship. There's plenty of things about that, which aren't necessarily positive, but I think, you know, that notion of placelessness that for most of human history, people, at least since we stopped being hunter gatherers and even, but even hunter gatherers, I think didn't, you know, there was a limit to their range, right? They, you know, (laughs) we've been connected to a place and we now essentially live in a placeless way. And, and I think that's alienating, you know, which literally the word alienation, right. means you're from another place. And, and so I, so I think that, yeah, that's the theme is okay. So we live in this placeless, this time of placelessness. How do we find place? How do we find connection? And, and so I guess there's sort of a dual thing going on here. I mean, first of all, you have to feel at home in the universe itself, which is where the the magic and that metaphor plays in. And then you also need to find connection, physical connection to, to a place and a people. And not that, not that the place itself matters in and of itself, I guess, but, but that sense of, of locatedness is, is probably a deep human need. And, and um, so, yeah, I think, I think if there is a theme that that's, that's it. Julian opens the book feeling um, like an alien at St. Elegius, the school. And by the end of it, it's his home. So I think yeah. that's, on that smaller level, that's him being part of a physical community. Yeah. And in fact, the very first scene of the book, he's on a train, right? He's moving, yeah, going from yeah, one place right. to another, passing through the right. suburbs. I mean, that, that was um, maybe a little heavy handed, but intentional, right? Um, <laughs> uh, you know, that's sort of a, I guess it's a metaphor for the, for our, the type of existence we have, we have created. So yeah, it, it is for sure place. And I, and I think, you know, the older I get, the, the more important I, I, that feels to me. Um, maybe that's a bit reactionary, but there you go. Yeah, there we go. So you have written a first novel. You have a background in theology. Um, where do you go from here? I mean, you got to do another one? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, are we going to see Julian again? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, this makes it it strikes me that that as I mentioned earlier, um, this is very much a you know a nineteenth century endeavor, uh, fantasy. Um, You know, I 
again, you don't really see fantasy before the 19th century to, to any great extent. And I, I think it's a reaction to modernity. Uh, it may, you know, maybe even goes back as far as, as the romantics and, you know, being um, not feeling at home with what's going on in the world. I mean, I, th- I think that's, that is a root of fantasy, uh, you know, so if a sort of serious person who can't, under, you know, it's not real, um, uh, you know, I, 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 that's, that's sort of my repost. Like, well, no, it's not real because the world we've created is bizarre. And, and so trying to imagine something else, um, uh, you know, I, I think, I think that's where it starts in the, in the 19th century. Um, so I, I don't know whether there's the, I mean, I think the question of a novel that has an idea that's driving it. Okay. I did that. Uh, I don't know that there's more to do with that. Uh, maybe there is, but, but, you know, I, I, maybe that's raises the question of, you know, is it too heavy handed? Can that be too heavy handed? Um, so the question then becomes if, if that part's done, which is really what I wanted to do, um, is there a reason to write something else with these characters? I guess the question is, are they, are the characters compelling enough to do something else with us? Is, is there enough character development? Maybe there's more character development to be done. Uh, I mean, for me, the, the challenge here was not the ideas. That part was easy. The challenge was the plot, like actually coming up with a plot that works and is relatively compelling. Um, that that to me was the hard part. Um, and so, I, so I guess the answer is: is there something more here? I, it would be well. Is there is there is there a, is there another plot that could be had? <laughs> well, okay, that, that's a good answer. I wish we could close with an excerpt here. I don't know if you have anything picked out, favorite section that you'd like to read for us to close this episode. Sure. Let's see. Okay, so I'm going to read a passage from towards the end, but not the end of the novel. Um, this is, so this is from a chapter where Julian is trying to learn how to use magic. And so this is where the two uh, sort of aspects of the novel maybe come together. Um, this sort of uh, theoretical background and then the actual working out the, the doing of, of magic. So this is a scene where he and one of the other characters, Tess, are sitting together and he's, he's trying to practice and learn how to do this. So they're under this big tree uh, on campus. Sitting there, he tried to breathe slowly and regularly. In doing so, he looked up into the many intertwining branches of the great tree, trying not to think of anything else. It was extraordinarily difficult. He followed one branch from the trunk up and out as it dissolved into a riot of green leaves. Then he moved on to another. It took time, a lot of time. It was so hard to stay focused. He was not aware of it, but Tess began to worry as the sun set and Julian remained still, staring up into the branches of the great tree. Gradually, Julian realized that though it was one tree, he was experiencing each branch in itself. Or was it that though it was many branches, he was experiencing one tree? Somehow the distinction between tree and branches grew thin until he could no longer tell them apart, nor that it was he looking at them. With a gasp, Julian realized he was teetering on the brink of losing all sense of himself, of the passage of time, of the difference between him and the tree, between him and the universe, between the tree and the universe, which it called to mind with its unity of many disparate branches. Before he did so completely, he reached out with his mind, 
And slowly the flash drive, that marvel of plastic and silicon and myriad electronic branches, so unlike and yet like the tree above him, began to rise from his lap. With a gasp, Julian looked down. The flash drive tumbled into his lap, and with a rush, he was intensely aware of himself and his surroundings and the fact that it was now dark. But his disorientation quickly vanished in the growing sense that he had done it, and in the overwhelming hug and squeal of delight from Tess. So this is uh, just a passage where this notion of self-transcendence and being able to overcome the barriers of space and time as a result <clears throat> gets sort of worked out. And, and he's, he's sort of learning how to do it. And of course, this um, builds in the novel that there is a, uh, a climactic scene, uh, which I don't want to read because that would be a spoiler, um, where this gets worked out much more uh, extensively. But hopefully that gives our readers a sense of um, that these ideas actually lead to action and plot. So yes. there you have it. Read um, the novel by Alfred Reeves Bisson, my co-bigler here, the push, a push of the pendulum. And uh, go with Julian to find your place to be at home in the universe. You can find the novel at dedalia.net. Yes, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to actually post e-reader versions of it so people can download the whole thing if they wish. Yeah, go to our page. You'll find it there. Join us next time when we take a look at Carl Jung's Answer to Job and explore whether he succeeds in making myth and religious thought accessible to the modern reader. <laughs> <laughs>